Hi, my name is Dakin Hardwick, the managing editor at Spinning Platters, and welcome to the inaugural episode of our new podcast, How Did I Get Here? The premise behind the podcast is pretty basic. Uh, I'm talking to people that have achieved uh, some level of success in the entertainment world and talking them through their journey uh, of getting to where they are today. Uh, any setbacks, any interesting stories, just what it took to achieve the level of success they've reached. Uh, today on our first episode, yes, I've already said inaugural and I've said first, this is a professional operation. I'm going to talk to Vivian Chavez, AKA Claire Bodacious, a burlesque dancer who also puts on the Kind of Blue Review, a burlesque and jazz variety show that happens at venues throughout San Francisco. Uh, Clara, AKA Vivian and I, uh, used to work together at Eventbrite. Uh, so throughout the interview, you may hear some, uh, Eventbrite internal slang used. Uh, Brightling is another word for Eventbrite employee. Uh, and we may have mentioned a few employees that worked there to, when we worked there. If you are one of those people you mentioned, you're famous at least hopefully famous. We'll see, uh, we'll see where this podcast goes. Uh, so yeah, why don't you, uh, crack open a mango white claw and enjoy the show. So my very first question for you is, how did you find burlesque? Uh, that's a great question. So the the origin story um, there, a tiny bit of background is that I have been dancing uh, and doing theater since I was really young. So my first dance recital was when I was, you know, a child. I was like six, but then I started dancing relatively like seriously, meaning I just went through a lot of classes at like around the age of 12. Um, danced throughout high school, did a lot of choreography, did a lot of musical theater. Uh, I majored in theater and dance in college. And then after I graduated, um, I moved to New York and I was quickly totally overwhelmed and out of my depth and realized that I could never be what I thought was like a professional performer, like a successful performer. So I sort of like didn't set foot on stage, um, like for four years after college, which was crazy. That was the longest I'd ever gone. And actually... I started at Eventbrite in 2000 and oh my god 2012 and in my first week or so I was on the CX team and we were all answering phone calls and everyone was like really friendly and lovely and someone was like hey I'm going to a dance class didn't you used to dance and I was like yeah and they're like do you want to come and I was like oh sure because I didn't have kids so I could do whatever the fuck I wanted <laughs> on any given night uh, and so I went over to this dance class and I was like, what is it? And they're like, oh, it's a burlesque choreography class. And I was like, oh, totally cool. And I like Googled burlesque. I didn't <laughs> actually know what it was. And I show up at this class and it just rocked my world. Like I remember so much about that night. And um, I hadn't been in a space where, because when you grow up doing modern dance and ballet, there's like a lot of, a lot of um, body uh, policing and everyone tends to be quite thin or is striving to be thin and uh, you can get parts or not get parts based on the way you look. And then I took this class and it completely blew apart my understanding of what a dancer's body looks like and like what dancing was about. And after that night I went home 
and um, just Googled every single thing I could find and like quickly became hooked and like, like kept searching out more classes. And so I really stumbled into it um, at the invitation of someone who I owe a lot to Nettie Hammer. She worked at Eventbrite for a long time and uh, I've just been addicted ever since. Before I ever saw burlesque, I honestly, like, I just thought it was an old timey version of a strip show. Yeah, um, but, <laughs> that's a valid thought. <laughs> yeah, but but then when I when I first witnessed it, I was I was impressed because it, it blends in so many art forms. Like, it is dancing. There is like an erotic dance element. There also is a huge like stand up comedy and sketch component. Oh, yeah. It's comedy. That's yeah. I mean I think that's what people don't realize is like you know, I could give a whole history lesson on the roots of burlesque, but a big part of it was that it was part of a burlesque review. And that included standups and slapstick and sketches. And like the dancing was one part of it, but slapstick and like humor is a huge part of the art form. Yeah. So you've already kind of went over a little bit of your history with dance and finding dance. Uh, What inspired you as a, as a comedian, like who did you look towards as like, this is my inspiration for this side of burlesque? Um, first of all, I'm very inspired that you're calling me a comedian just by proxy of the question. Um, so comedy actually is a huge passion of mine and I have always wanted to be funny and I've always had a sort of mild obsession with uh, stand-up comedians and like old-timey writers. So in college, I was very um, enamored with Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And like that sort of uh, silent film era slapstick was sort of part of like my senior thesis. I did like a production um, and part of what I wanted. It's very hard to do. And, you know, clowning is actually like a really serious art form. So I was never like formally trained in it, but I always loved it and sort of tried to emulate it. Uh, And then I realized that I I was pretty funny on a microphone. And a lot of that came through like work and just hanging out with friends and like some casual stuff that I'd done. Uh, and then I actually, um, Nick Katz, I don't know if you overlapped with him. He was a Brightling. He came to see me MC my very first time and I was totally nervous and he was so sweet. He'd gone to like a bunch of open mics and he handed me like a book at, at in the office the next week that was like, you know, writing jokes 101 and that's sort of how I started understanding that comedy was a thing that you could learn and practice um but if I look back like the comedians that I'm obsessed with Maria Bamford is like a huge one for me and I think that like I actually have to try kind of hard not to just become her on stage because I you know when you love someone a lot you sort of adapt their style of comedy um and now I'm blanking on a bunch of people who I adore but yeah there's a lot of great stand-up that's inspired my hosting I want to stop you just to tell you one important thing to note. Um, my current bookmark is uh, Maria Bamford at the Castro Theater in February of this year. Oh my God. Was it amazing? I wasn't at it. It was, it was pretty wonderful. It was, it, it, it was, it was funny cause it was, it was, it was a sketch fest event and there are two things that I was juggling between that night. And like one of them was kind of a, a, like a, a children's hospital like panel thing and I thought well nobody else is going to go to this but I kind of want to see this and then I saw and then I thought no I've never seen Maria Bamford this is a really good opportunity to see Maria Bamford I should just make this happen and I'm really glad I made the decision and I also kind of see it with you you, you two do kind of 
you, you do kind of have a few of her mannerisms when you when you talk. Yeah, she has a um, it's not quite self-deprecating, but she has this like brutal self-honesty in combination with like this strange, subtle like so societal commentary mm-hmm. that she throws in there. She has a bit about um, an old bit about uh, makeup and how it keeps women from starting a revolution. And that was sort of like the seed of a lot of my onstage personality where it's sort of cheeky, but like underneath it, there's a lot of like anger. <laughs> That's so, me. Yeah, that, that definitely is, is, is you. I also that checks out. <laughs> we'll, we'll make note to the listening audience that you mentioned Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And the outfit you're wearing is very Buster Keaton. <laughs> Which is yeah. uh, which is a black and white polka dot uh, collarless blazer or collarless uh, dress shirt and uh, I suspenders a suspended high waisted overalls <laughs> yes yeah I yeah D- do me a favor and watch out for banana peels on your way out I will I can't make any promises though <laughs> I happen to be quite clumsy and perpetually covered in bruises from banging into things. Fair, I, I guess another skill that a dancer should have. Yeah, t- <laughs> totally. Um, okay, so 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 your roots as a comedian. Uh, so when you, what was it like when you? What were what was your first performance like? Like where was it at? What was it like for burlesque? For burlesque, yes. Um, El Rio was where I had my first show and it was with a group called Red Hot's Burlesque and we used to perform in the little back area, not outdoors but inside. And it's tiny. It's like total underground, very punk rock kind of space, like folding chairs, nothing elaborate or fancy. Um, And I did a song, this old like shimmy, shimmy gully. It's kind of like a 1950s um, twist and shout rip rip off. And I was terrified. And I don't I don't get stage fright very often because I've pretty much grown up on stage. Um, but the idea of taking off my clothes and like doing this new thing was just so mind boggling. And I remember my leg shaking really hard. And then after I got off stage, it was like one of the highest highs that I have ever felt, which I think is part of the addiction to it. Um, it's very liberating and it's, it's like very much about conquering a fear. So it was, yeah, it was this tiny little room. I remember everything about the day we the dressing room was, um, it's literally the broom closet. So there's like a whole bunch of like performers shoved into this corner and you're like, like sitting on top of an old keg, like holding your hand mirror and trying to put on makeup. Um, and that's when I learned that most people try to put on their makeup before they get to the quote unquote dressing room. Uh, but yeah, that was back in 2012, same year I started at Eventbrite. Yeah. So how did you get connected to Red Hot Burlesque? That was through the class that I took. So uh, the coworker dragged me to the Center for Sex and Culture, which is a space on Mission Street that's sadly no longer open. Um, but they used to have uh, sort of like a library and they used to do art galleries and it was like this kind of cool DIY space um, and they would host classes um, of all kinds of sorts. And so I went to a choreography class hosted by Alada Boutte, who's an amazing performer. She was a longtime Beach Blanket Babylon performer and still does great stuff in the Bay Area. Uh, and then I went to Dottie Lux's Burlesque 101 and 201. Yeah, and that was sort of my introduction. So after your first show, how did you how did you stay focused and motivated? I know you had the first high, but after that, then you have to start kind of selling yourself and getting yourself on other shows to keep doing it uh what was your what was your process for that 
That's a good question. I had, um, I had a small advantage in that I had a lot of training as a performer and a dancer. And so a lot of people who are just starting on burlesque, they might not come in with that training. And so they have to do like a lot more classwork and show up and do um, things. And I was lucky enough that I got to kind of um, send a lot of people, you need to have a video. And so I could send a video or I had a few producers see me at shows and then reach out to me and ask me to be in shows. Um, and uh, with Red Hots, you know, I was able to do like a lot of gigs at El Rio and some of these private gigs. And so it was really just a matter of like putting in the time and going to other people's shows and meeting people. And like, I think a lot of people enter a space as a performer and I think it's really valuable to enter as a fan either first or at the same time and show up for people in the same way that like we rely on people to show up for us. But then honestly, like the thing that's kept me going is it's almost just like a compulsion. Like I, I need it. I go stir crazy when I don't have a creative outlet and this scratches so many itches for me. It is um, because it's a solo act, you get to create everything from scratch and there's a lot of like character development and there's some crafting because a lot of us make our own costumes. Um, and then there's like, you know, the high of the actual show and, and the social aspect because you're, you're getting to like inhabit these spaces that mean a lot. So I just, I just couldn't get enough. And so I just was constantly, constantly putting myself out there and constantly trying to see what was going on in the scene. Um, and then my career had uh, some minor interruptions because I had babies, two babies <laughs> during the last eight years of doing burlesque. Um, and so that would sort of slow me down. But then as soon as I could get backstage on stage again, I just, I just couldn't help it. That's, that's wonderful. I was going to ask you what it was like to, to come back after, after having kids. Yeah, it was different for both of them because with my first um, pregnancy, it wasn't, it was unexpected in terms of timing. And, uh, I got very nervous about being on stage pregnant because I was still relatively new and like coming to terms with like what it meant to be a naked body and like what it meant to be, uh, an object of desire. And I had to like kind of pick apart some of my own like toxic narratives about like how a body should and should not look. And so I, I stopped performing when I started showing for the first one and then I didn't come back for, um, like a year and a half afterwards, I think. And then with my second pregnancy, I was on stage until I couldn't move. I was so huge. Uh, I had done, I had done a lot of the work and I had, I had changed my own thinking and I had shifted my understanding of what was valuable and like what was important to be seen. Um, and so I did a, my last show when I was pregnant the second time was the Folsom Street Fair. I performed outdoors, very pregnant. I did a pregnant nun act um, to a Maria, a combination of um, Sound of Music's Maria and then Michael Jackson's Maria track and the stage was black mylar so it was a million degrees in the middle of September in San Francisco and I like burned my feet and I got off stage and I looked at my partner and I was like don't let me do another show <laughs> um, so I stopped and then I was back on stage like six months postpartum with her because I was just jonesing for it yeah it was a ride <laughs> that, that's beautiful yeah, so you've traveled essentially around the world doing burlesque. Um, how, how do you how do you reach how did you reach that echelon like as a touring burlesque promote performer? Because that's not super common, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, a lot of the traveling parts of burlesque, it's it's a little bit of privilege and resource because. Um, the festival circuit, and I think this is similar for, for some of the band festival circuits, it's not quite pay to play, but it's pretty close. Um, 
if you are one of the headliners, then you're usually getting flown out and, and um, getting the star treatment and stuff. But for the rest of us, we're usually making our own way there. We get a small stipend. Um, but what I did was when I had the band within my life to leave the the house and like my husband could juggle and I had the flexibility at work where like I sort of had the autonomy and people trusted me to get stuff done and like work weird hours. I was like, you know what, this is the year where I'm going to submit myself for some festivals. Um, so I was really excited because I, I got into quite a few my first year, which I didn't expect it, expect. And the downside of that was that I had a very hard time saying no to things. And so I said yes to a lot. So I spent two years doing probably an insane amount of travel with the burlesque and with like, I travel for work at the time. Um, so I was on the road a lot, but I, I tried to select festivals sort of strategically. So I have a brother that lives in Seattle and I um, applied to the Moisture Festival, which is a great uh, variety festival that it's a month long, primarily circus, but then they have this one weekend called the Liberties Cabaret. Um, and that was an incredible experience. That was like one of the the festival treated us really well and paid us really well. And it was great. Um, I flew out to the Czech Republic cause I have a brother that lives in Prague and I got into that festival and that was just a dream. We were performing in this 1930s theater. Um, and it was really incredible to be with like all the international crew. I went to Hawaii. I got into Minneapolis, which is a big Minneapolis has like this really pop in scene, um, for burlesque and theater. And so that was a huge joy. Um, so yeah, it's really just a matter of like, finally getting to the point where you feel like you have an act that you want to show off in these bigger spaces. And like, you can sort of demonstrate that you are, um, you're a seasoned performer and that you can like handle the, the rigors of traveling and, and performing in new spaces. Um, and then also having the resources, you know, there's like in every performing art, there's a little bit of a advantage, which I think a lot of us are trying to level right now on the privilege front. What does uh, equity in burlesque look like to you? I mean, it doesn't look as good as we want it to, for sure. Um, there's a lot of work right now. I think I have observed a lot of communities in performing and otherwise having a big reckoning with the fight for racial justice right now. And I think it's great and important and it's difficult and it's uncomfortable and it makes me itchy. Um, and even, you know, those of us who thought we were woke and thought we were doing the work beforehand are realizing like a lot of the ways that we were complicit in these problematic systems. And so right now what Eddie looks like is really stepping to the side and handing the mic over. So I've been a little bit quiet in the burlesque. I mean, we're all stuck at home, but I, I haven't been really participating in performing in online shows or, or pushing out a lot of my own content because I'm trying to find ways to boost the voices that need the microphone right now so a lot of black performers indigenous people of color um but you know really especially focus, especially focusing on the black community um and using anything i can do to, to amplify them using their art to say what needs to be said um so i think what equity in burlesque looks like right now is like an i wouldn't call it an overcorrection but like a fundamental shift to the other direction um, so I'm excited about it. I, I hope that it's a lasting change. I hope that like a lot of us take this practice into the long term, you know, way that we produce and the way that we curate shows. Uh, but I think in the past, you know, we were as, as disappointingly not equitable as a lot of other fields. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's no such thing, I think, as a fully equitable field. But yeah, I, I, I like that logic that, that you need to overcorrect to, to settle. It's kind of like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, she'll, I'm paraphrasing, but she'll 
feel that it thinks there's justice when there are nine female Supreme Court justices. Yeah. Which people are like, that's extreme. And you're like, fuck you. How long has there been nine male justices? Like, that's not extreme at all. It's just not what you're used to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm feeling that way. It's like, I don't want to see my Instagram feed go back to normal. Like I want to keep seeing all of these, all of this work being done, all these voices being lifted. So trying to be a part of that, but you know, as a white person, I have to take a back seat. Yeah. Sometimes backing off is being part of it. Totally. Totally. Yeah. All right. So, so I'm going to take a quick swerve all the way to the right. Um, mostly because I don't want to run out of time, uh, kind of blue review. So you've been doing burlesque for a number of years and being on other people's shows. And then you've created your own show that is essentially a variety show. But like, so just tell me where did Kind of Blue Review begin? So Kind of Blue Review began, um, I, oh man, origin story. I guess I could keep it simple. I'm like a creator and I want to create things. And I have um, a lot of these visions in my head, I think is like a lot of us creatives do where like, it's just kind of a fountain of ideas, which are a dime a dozen. And then like the good ideas sort of, sort of stick around in your head and like gnaw at you a little bit. And I had an idea a few years ago where I was like, I, I became really, um, infatuated with the New Orleans burlesque scene and they perform to live, live music a lot, like the big band live music that you see coming out of NOLA. And we don't have a lot of that in San Francisco. It's not like a huge part of our music scene. We're a lot more on the indie rock, um, uh, hip hop. And like, you know, there's a lot of jazz and stuff happening too, but like there's not a lot of big band stuff. And so I sought out, um, I decided that I would really love to do this show. And I created like a mock flyer one day when I just had too much coffee and my husband was in the middle of a dissertation and I sort of like shared it with a couple of my friends and I was like, I want to do a show that's like about blues and jazz and like with live dancers. And I want to call it kind of blue review. And they're like, that's tight. Uh, and I just like put that in my mental file and then fast forwarded a couple of years. And I finally had like the time and the bandwidth to do it. And I was out um, getting drinks with Tommy Goodwin, who is a former Brightling and a very dear friend. And he produces a lot of hip hop shows and, and he's done a lot of um, live theater and stuff or not theater. He would, he would roll his eyes if I said that. Um, he's done a lot of live music production in the Bay area. And so we were talking about it and I mentioned the show and he loved it. And he's like, let's do this. Like, let's make this happen. And so sort of with his prompting, we, I really like decided to take it seriously and start making moves. Um, I found a band that I liked. Uh, I begged Piano Fight to let me do like a messy version. I reached out to the best performers that I hoped would say yes, and they all said yes. And we just did the fucking thing. Um, and the thing that was magical about it was the audience reaction that first night at Piano Fight. They really turned it into what it became, which was this really interactive, like half dance party, half show, um, just like rolling. It's like an old fashioned good time. And I love it a lot. I'm, and then we, we ended up, we just kept blowing our venues up. And so the second time we did it, we did it at Cafe du Nord and the place was so packed, you could hardly see the show, which um, as a producer, I should not cry about, but I was so sad that like a lot of people didn't have like an ideal experience because they couldn't see a lot of what was going on. 
And so then I like told Tommy, I was like, I want to do a great American. And he was like, Viv, uh, it seems like kind of big. And I was like, I want to do a great American. So I got really stubborn and I bothered them quite a bit and sent a few emails and finally like went to the venue one day to like convince the general manager that like they should give us a shot. And they did. And it was just one of the most magnificent nights of my life. And the hardest thing about kind of blue is that obviously this really astronomical growth was like suddenly arrested with COVID. Um, which, you know, so many of us experience that right now. And it's, it's kind of like hard to even think about. So that was the origin of it. And now it's sort of like in this funny state of suspense and I'm trying to figure out what the future looks like. Yeah. I, I was impressed with something I noticed uh, you you saying on social media that you still wanted to pay your performers for the show that didn't happen. Were you able to do that? Yeah. It, so we had a show that was scheduled for late or mid-March at Piano Fight. We were trying this like sort of new, um, I'm clearly antsy and like every show we have to like tackle something new. So one thing that I was about to try to work on was just like settling down and doing the same thing a few times. Um, but we were trying a new um, addition to it. So in addition to having the live show, I really wanted this to be a community-based, um, like show is not even the right word, like this community-based like life and we wanted to share all of the like expertise and all of the joy that our performers and band were bringing to these shows. And that was like really catching on with people. And so we were going to do this full day of full evening of classes and like these accessible photo shoots. Uh, and then, you know, the whole night would end in this great performance. And so we were going to call that baby blue. Um, and it got canceled because of COVID. And this was early on when people were still like, should we have shows? Should we not have shows? And this was right on the cusp of when SF finally got shut down. People still thought we were just being overly sensitive about a bad flu, you know? Uh, and I, yeah, I was really devastated. I, again, going back to like my privilege, I don't rely on producing and performing as my main source of income. I have a day job that like supports me. When I started doing these shows, I set up a separate LLC and bank account. So like all the money for the show is like made for the show and made for the performers. And so we did a fundraiser with our Blue Babe Challenge, which is like the series of Instagram dance videos that we did um, and encouraged people to donate if they could. And we raised enough money to pay everyone, all the performers and um, folks in the band who relied on gigging as their main source of income, what they would have gotten that night, which felt really good. You know, I wish I could do more. I wish, yeah, it feels it feels like a million years ago and it feels like a drop in the bucket. But at the moment, it did feel really good to be able to pay people. <laughs> yeah, well, again, I, 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 I literally, like, I, I follow a lot of producers, a lot of companies. Nobody was else was doing that that I saw. <sighs> yeah, I, I observed the same thing. And I think there's a lot of fear um, there's fear for keeping your own thing alive. There's fear for, you know, the venues that we love leaving us. And so I think I was trying to operate out of not a sense of scarcity, like we all had to fight for table scraps, but like a sense of abundance. Like if we if we approach this with like a sharing mentality and a community survival mentality, then like it'll go better. Um, but, you know, I have to say that again from like a place of privilege is the, the kind of producing that I was doing. Um, but yeah, I think I think performers got lost a little bit in some of the stuff that was going down for sure. Yeah. All right. I, I, I don't want to end this on on this the somber note. Yeah, let's do something happy. Um. So somebody else, imagine you eight years ago. If there's another you in floating around listening to this right now, 
what is the one thing that you want them to take from your career trajectory? Like, what is the one like bit of advice for a young person that just found burlesque that has your level of ambition that wants to like, that wants to do something great with it? Yeah. One bit. Oh man. I guess if I had to pick one thing and if I had to distill it, is just do the fucking work. Like nothing happens overnight. The best performers that you see have spent years and years and hours um, honing their craft. Uh, you might not get the gigs right away. You might not, you know, have great acts right away. But like, if you if you want to do this, like you have to fall in love with the work and like the creation process. It can't just be about your name on the flyer. It has to be about all of the hours that went into getting your name on that. And that's like where you get the joy. I think our society does a bad job of honoring that. And I think that there's a lot of like emphasis and rewards and acknowledgement given to like wonder kids who like, like, you know, become CEOs when they're 23. And those stories are like exciting and interesting. But I think that the real magic, I think that like a joyful life looks different than that. I think that falling in love with the craft and pouring yourself into it and like finding joy and doing the work is like the secret. So yeah, do the work. <laughs> awesome. Well, so so yeah, you're you, you've interviewed, I believe is Vivian, not Clara. I go, they're both. So I, I talk about this a little bit. I think that like, the, um, the concept of the alter ego in burlesque is actually a really powerful one and something that like one of my long-term dreams is to share whatever we happen to unlock as performers um, and give people who are not performers the access to this like strange confidence and power that we get by putting on these alter egos. So I used to be quite um, segmented in my life and like I didn't want people at work to know about Clara and I didn't want people backstage to know about Vivian. And these days like I just fully inhabit both. And every now and then I have like cognitive dissonance where I'm like introducing myself and I'm like, uh, what's my name? <laughs> so Claire Bodacious is Vivian Chavez and vice versa. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, although I thought it'd be funny if they were both two distinctly different personas. But. I mean, they, they started out that way. And I don't know if Vivian turned into Clara or Clara turned into Vivian. <laughs> they just sort of like affected each other. <laughs> uh, you've created your own monster. I have. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, both Vivian and Clara, it's been a, a distinct pleasure to have you as my inaugural guest. And it also, yeah, it, it's weirdly making me feel a little emotional just seeing you. I know. It, it's yeah. a lot. I have to compartmentalize a lot of feelings, but I'm <laughs> so happy that you're doing this. And I'm so happy that like, you know, when I first, when quarantine first hit, the thing I kept saying was like, creator is going to create, like, you know, this is not going to stop even though we can't see each other in person. And like, even though you and I aren't in the same office, like the people who like lift each other up and spark joy is like the people that we gravitate towards. So you and I are going to do some more weird shit. And I'm so happy that you, you know, dragged me out of Facebook messenger and finally into this project. Yeah. Well, again, I've, I've, I've been determined to, it's weird. Like even before we ever interacted, like my vibe off you was like, Vivian's going to be my friend. <laughs> like this is this is this is my kind of person and I couldn't quite put my finger on it and then I've just been kind of determined to do something with you and this is uh yeah and I'm I'm glad we finally are and I think yeah I, we definitely need to keep in touch throughout all of this um yeah 100% you're my people I think is what it is it's like you and I are both I think we're super fans and we, we love art you know even more we love making it you know like I think of you as a creator and like 
you know, how many things you participate in and like even your karaoke and projects like this and your blog, like you're always, you're the same as me. And like the best way to hang out with me is to engage me in a project because making time for social stuff is like not, I don't prioritize it. But then someone's like, do you want to work on something? I'm like, yes, I need more work. (laughs) It's exactly what I want to do. So this is great. And I want to, yeah, we can get up to some shenanigans. Um, And I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes. You're a lovely person. And I think everyone that meets you and gets to hear you talk just wants to hear more, Dakin. And that's the end of our inaugural podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank Vivian Chavez for being our guest today. Uh, Feel free to follow at SpinPlatt on Twitter, at SpinPlatt on Instagram. Uh, or you can uh, befriend Spinning Platters on Facebook. Um, Also, if you like what you've heard and you want to donate money to the podcast, I don't have a day job right now, and I could use the money. So uh, you can Venmo me at Dakin, that's D-A-K-I-N, dash Hardwick, H-A-R-D-W-I-C-K. A little tip, if you enjoyed the show. And yeah, we'll be back soon. I haven't decided how often I'll be putting these out. So maybe we'll be back next week. Maybe you'll hear one of these in six months. Uh, Hopefully sooner. I think it'll be sooner. I kind of enjoy doing this. Thanks a lot and enjoy the rest of whatever you're doing right now.